This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making real ingredients for real athletes looking to step up their nutrition. In fact, Bob's is so committed to giving athletes real food, they're sneaking real food into something that's really easy to make out of unreal food, protein powder. When Bob's Red Mill set out to make their protein powder, they pulled out all the stops. Bob's protein powder is made from pea protein, chicory root, and chia seeds, and sweetened with monk fruit instead of sugar. It's also free of whey protein, so folks with lactose problems can use it to supplement their diet. It's vegan, full of probiotics, omega-3s, and iron, and supports digestive health. So put it in smoothies, add it to popcorn, or if you can't decide between flavors, go and read more about it at bobsredmill.com outside, where you can also enter for a chance to win some fun Bob's Red Mill prizes, a subscription to Outside, a book from our collection, and a brand new backpack. One winner will be selected at random each month. That's bobsredmill.com outside. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is The Outside Podcast. In 2005, author Richard Louvre wrote what was an unlikely bestseller. It was titled Last Child in the Woods, and it helped spark an international movement to examine the health benefits of spending time outdoors. Today, this idea is ubiquitous. Every week, it seems, there's another headline about a study showing that being in wild places helps us deal with anxiety or depression or even PTSD. Back in 2005, though, the iPhone didn't even exist yet. In Last Child in the Woods, Louvre was concerned about Nintendo and something called a kid pager. Anyway, the point is, Louvre proved to be a visionary, able to see a growing problem that the rest of us missed in our excitement about new technologies. His ideas were initially viewed as pretty radical. But Louvre was right, and his book led to the creation of nonprofits that facilitated new research and expanded access to public parks. This includes Louvre's own group, the Children in Nature Network. When Last Child in the Woods came out, there were about 60 studies on the impact of our time outdoors. Today, they're close to 1,000. Now Louvre is back with his 10th book, Our Wild Calling which focuses on the importance of human interactions with animals, both our pets and wild creatures, something he believes has the same kind of therapeutic benefit as being in nature. If you think that being encouraged to hang out with raccoons sounds a bit new-agey, well, you're not alone. As Lou explains in the book, scientists have historically stayed away from research on human-animal relationships because they were afraid of being labeled quacks. Outside Magazine editor Chris Kyes reviewed our wild calling for our November print issue. He reported that when it comes to interactions with wild animals, there's still limited empirical evidence to support that this is good for us. And yet, he suggests it's worth hearing Louvre out on the idea, given the author's track record. Chris recently called Louvre at his home outside San Diego to talk about the book, and why even the most serious scientists seem to understand that something special happens when we engage with wild animals. Something we don't totally understand. Here's Chris. So I'd like to begin where your book begins, when you're in Alaska and you have this strange meeting with a fox. I'm hoping you could start by describing that memorable encounter. Well, I was at a, at a camp on a lake on Kodiak Island um, where there are almost as many 
Alaskan brown, brown bears as there are uh, people. And I was walking from the cabin up to the lodge where my son was waiting for me. And I was supposed to be paying attention because the bears wander through camp quite a bit. And uh, I was staring at my wallet. I was going through my wallet for some reason. And suddenly I realized there was something in my path. And I stopped and these two eyes were looking at me. Very bright, very piercing eyes. And fortunately, it wasn't a, a bear. It was a, a, a fox, a black fox, a, a very large black fox. The foxes there on Kodiak are some of the largest in the world. And it was staring at me intently and it wouldn't move. And we stared at each other for a while. Um, and I, I had this, this sense that, um, that I was looking uh, into another place, into a, uh, a place I'd been before, but couldn't remember. And, uh, after a while, uh, uh, with the fox not budging, I stepped forward and it stepped to the side and I thought, you know, is it rabid? I don't think so. Uh, doesn't want me to feed it. Nobody fed the foxes there. And uh, so I walked a little ways and it walked beside me, walked up the path. And I said, you want to go with me? I'm going, <laughs> going to the lodge. And it kept walking with me. And finally it veered off into the high grass. But it was this odd moment that kind of reminded me of how often I had, particularly as a boy, had had encounters with animals that um, I couldn't explain that there was some kind of communication that I, I couldn't uh, really understand. So uh, that was a little bit of the genesis of this book, is to try to understand that, that elemental relationship, almost primal, indescribable, beyond language uh, relationship we, we have with other animals. Um, you know, the, the way that Descartes viewed animals was that they were um, machines. And that has gripped Western society, at least, for a long, long time. But that's changing. Increasingly, we know that animals are far more intelligent. Some of them are far more intelligent than we thought. Uh, there's a, an, a, an oceanographer that I tell his story in, in the book, uh, Paul Dayton at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in, in uh, La Jolla, uh, California. Um, he talks about being out in the ocean, on the bottom of the ocean one day, collecting samples. And he felt something large move above him. Uh, that's usually not a good sign when you feel something really large. <laughs> and, and, and it moved above him and it stopped above him. And he looked up slowly and he sees these tentacles come down. It was a giant octopus, the type that have 12-foot wingspans. And this thing looked at him and decided he was a clam. And it came down and got him. And it wrapped him up in its tentacles. And, and he said, people think those are soft. They're not. They're really hard. And they're impossible to get off of you. And uh, about around that time, he realized he was running out of air. So he kicked off uh, uh, used his last bit of strength and kicked off the bottom of the ocean and he began to go up in the column of water with the octopus attached to him. As he went up, the octopus moved around his body. He could feel the razor-sharp beak moving around his neck. And it came 
so its face was in front of him and he's looking into the octopus's eye. And he said, now this would get him in trouble, he said, with some of his fellow scientists, but he said he thought that he and the octopus at some point on that ascension to the surface made a non-aggression pact. That's how he put it. And uh, he thought he was a goner and then suddenly he breaks through the water, through the surface of the water. The octopus is there still looking at him, kind of lets go of him a little bit. It had already been relaxing. And and he had, Paul had already relaxed, which is interesting because that's what prey do. That's what the gazelle does in the lion's mouth. And so he watches this octopus pull away from him. They're still making eye contact. And then the octopus begins to drift down into the darkness and disappears into the darkness. And what does Paul do? He rips off his mask, takes a gasping breath, and chases the octopus down. He dives after the octopus and he swims as far down as he can get. Why in the hell did he do that? And I asked Paul that, and he said he has no explanation other than it was to him a kind of spiritual moment. He's one of the most famous oceanographers around. He's in his early, late 70s, early 80s. He says he doesn't, he's old enough, he doesn't care what people say anymore about a thing like that. He's highly respected, but but to him, this this was something, um, it was similar to what I had felt and what so many of the people uh, described. I, I collected hundreds of stories to, to write the book, and uh, many of the people talked about this sense of transcendence, um, and they wanted it again. Um. So much of your book, as you say, you know, almost every scientist, expert, um, person that you talk to as part of this book, you would ask them if they had a particular encounter with an animal that was um, memorable or had made an impact on them. And um, it seemed to be almost to, to a person. They all had something, um, if, if pressed. Um, some of them, the, these wild stories like the octopus story that you share. And I'm wondering... After all the research that you've done on this book and all those stories that you've you've heard, you know, going back to that encounter you had with the fox, do you have a different understanding of what was going on and what, what why you think that 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 fox was um, following you that day and, and what what happened between you? I write about the fox in the introduction to our wild calling. And the name of the introduction is a mystery. Uh, I still believe it's a mystery. I still don't fully understand it. I don't pretend to. Um, and that's part of its attraction. That's part of its power, is that we really don't fully understand this. And we need mystery and, and wonder. Uh, and one of the interesting things, too, as I, as I wrote that, I spent four years uh, working on the book, is that I learned pretty quickly that it was the same phenomenon I had seen when I was researching Last Child in the Woods about the disconnection between children and nature. Um, when I would talk to people, it didn't matter who they were. They could be sociologists. They could be parents down the street. They could be kids themselves, but usually they were older. Um, they immediately wanted to tell me about their own childhood about their special place in nature. It didn't seem to matter what somebody's politics or religion was. They all wanted to share that with me. They wanted to tell me about the treehouse they had when they were a kid. 
if they were old enough now to have had that experience, because many kids have not had that now. So immediately there was this storytelling factor. They wanted to tell me the story of their own kids too. With this book, with Our Wild Calling, immediately people wanted to tell me about the dog they had when they were a kid or the cat um, or the pigeon. Or they wanted to tell me about the encounter they had uh, with the coyote walking through the backyard or with the bear on Kodiak Island or wherever. They wanted to tell that story and they wanted to tell other people that story. And John Young calls that story catching. I mean, this is very old. People have always done this and they did it around campfires, you know, millennia, millennia ago, in which they would tell about their encounter when they were hunting or just when they were out there with a wild animal, and they would act it out around the, physically act it out, become the animal around the campfire. People still have that in them, and they still want to do it. And uh, in those moments, again, it's impossible to feel alone. Yeah, and another, I think another word uh, for that, which you describe in the book, is awe, and this importance of awe that happens when uh, you have such an encounter, and I think that's a great illustration of it. What is awe and, and what do we know about it and why is it important? Well, it's an increasing uh, topic of study. There are more and more people looking at its effect on us and on our mental health, on our psychological well-being, on even our physical health. Uh, and we feel it usually in moments in which we uh, are insecure, facing something much larger than us. Uh, we're certainly not in what D.H. Lawrence called the know-it-all state of mind. In you know, when you're when you're feeling awe and wonder, uh, you're not in charge of, of 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 the world or the universe. And I think that's what many people feel when they have this feeling. Now, it doesn't have to be with a predator. It doesn't have to be with a, a large animal. It can be. Uh, I mean, I, one of the guys I interviewed was a, a scientist in um, in Canada who had this feeling with a, with a protozoan when he was looking at it through a microscope. And it moved from point A to point B very quickly, like he couldn't see it. It moved so fast. And he again, he had this sudden awareness that there was agency there, that were there, the, that protozoan had made a decision. And... As simple and as basic as that sounds, it filled him with awe and wonder. Um, we need more of that in our lives. I mean, we don't have a lot of that uh, in the, you know, it's very seldom you have a sense of awe and wonder when you're playing uh, a video game or uh, on Facebook. We'll be right back. So at the top of the show, we heard about Bob's Red Mill protein powder. And how it's kind of the Cadillac of protein powders, since it's made from all the best stuff, like chia, chicory root, and pea protein. But how does it taste? Well, there's a smoothie recipe on the Bob's Red Mill website for a tropical breeze booster that sounded pretty good. So, I made it. Alright. Turns out, it's good. I had vanilla, but you could still taste all the other ingredients. And I didn't get that chalky protein powder texture in my mouth. For more info, go to bobsredmill.com outside. And remember to enter to win an assortment of prizes. 
That's bobsredmill.com slash outside. So before we talk more about wild animals, I want to talk a little bit about pets. And first off, as you write about, there's been this huge increase in pet ownership in America. What do we attribute that to? Well, a lot of people attribute it to, um, you know, um, millennials who are delaying having children and so they want a substitute child or uh, grandparents, age people, boomers who want surrogate grandkids. Uh, uh, I don't think it's that simple. I, I, um, in the One of the central themes of our wild calling is the theme of uh, loneliness, of human loneliness, that there is an epidemic in the world that medical uh, folks are recognizing of loneliness. And uh, some of the studies, the World Health Organizations and others, have said that uh, human loneliness is about to um, uh, pass uh, obesity as a reason for mortality, for, for death. Uh, that it's very dangerous. It produces many of the same diseases as, uh, uh, as smoking and, and other um, other things that we do to ourselves. But we don't recognize loneliness as having this kind of effect on us, but it does. Um, I think that that loneliness, that human loneliness, it's not just because of Facebook or, you know, it's not just because we're plugged into our iPhones. I mean, I'm not anti-tech. I think it's because of something, it's based on a, a, an even deeper loneliness, which some have called species loneliness. Um, this, the studies of urban nature, for example, show that the parks, the urban parks, that have the best benefit for human psychological well-being are the parks with the highest biodiversity. Now, why is that? I don't think that's an accident. I think that we are desperate not to feel alone in the universe. To some people, that takes a religious, uh, has religious significance. But with or without formal religion, we don't want to be alone in the universe. And we're not. We're surrounded by life. We're surrounded by other beings. We're, we're, we're immersed in complex societies that we don't even see and personal relationships with those creatures that we don't give enough importance to, or at least some people don't. And when thinking about, um, you know, the need for these uh, human-animal interactions and uh, creating this awareness of, you know, sharing this earth with, with all these other creatures, where do you, how should we think about zoos in this day and age? And, um, the importance of those in terms of, you know, the, the, the whole justification most recently was that um, it's some of children's, you know, best exposure to animals, uh, even if it isn't an ideal situation to see them in. After reporting this book, how, how do you feel about zoos? Um, there, there is a section in the book about zoos. And one of the people I profile is a, a man I call the zookeeper who hates zoos. And he's in Phoenix, or was in Phoenix, he's moved since then, but he was in charge of the Phoenix Zoo. And he was very ambivalent about zoos, for all of the reasons one can guess. Um, he still did it, though, because he saw it as an opportunity. They would often, in the Phoenix Zoo, bring in um, uh, animals that had been hurt 
uh, that could not be released into the wild. And he would invite families to come and help take care of them. And kids in particular were, were good at this. Uh, he also accepted, for instance, rogue ele elephants. I, when I visited him, I, my wife and I met uh, a rogue element, uh, elephant that had uh, killed someone. And it was under his care. And it was a very nervous, anxious elephant and it would it made a kind of a waving uh it would weave its trunk back and forth and sway and kind of a syncopated uh, syncopat uh, syncopatic rhythm it was very disturbing to watch so he made it a refuge for animals that had been hurt that's not all that, that the zoo did but he was ambivalent about zoos um other people that I've interviewed who work for zoos see more of the benefit uh, of them uh, and the, so of course, zoos have critics who would never be satisfied uh, with captivity of any animal, and I understand that. But there is a movement among zoos to uh, do a couple things. In addition to continuing their conservation work, to play more of a role in the surrounding uh, territory, not only looking at lions and tigers from other continents, but looking at the animal life in their own uh, bioregion and helping protect it. Um, and there, uh, many of them are helping create family nature clubs, uh, which is something that we've promoted, uh, which is mul multiple families who join together to create a pool of families who, because of their fear of strangers, don't often get outside into nature. And uh, uh, they... Uh, have this pool of other families and they say, they put on the internet or they make phone calls say, oh, I want to take my kids to the park next Saturday. Anybody want to go with us? And then so multiple families will, will team up and go together. And there's perceived safety in numbers there. You don't have to have a foundation grant and all that. So zoos have been one of the leading organizations in, in helping promote that. Uh, so there are really good things that zoos can do. But petting zoos, by the way, are, are leaving. Uh, the children's zoos are turning far more into uh, places where uh, children learn to use more of their senses, learn to learn more about the animals themselves rather than just uh, little machines that walk by that that you can pet. So uh, there are there is change in, in zoos. And what about so so? Let's say okay. So I live in a a small city and. Um, there are animals around. I have children. Like, what are the ways that you recommend people try to establish um, an awareness and even a relationship with the wild animals that they're, you know, cohabitating with? Well, one of the ways is to 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 be with other people who are learning about it. Is to learn who is learning, and uh, hiking groups or even walking groups in urban areas can together learn about the critters that they encounter. Um, uh, that's one way. Some of the institutions that can make a huge difference are zoos can make a difference. So can natural history museums um, uh, who could encourage people to uh, replant their yards you know, with native species that produces the insects that feed the food chain that actually could help bring back biodiversity in some areas of some cities. Um, uh there are libraries now that we, I call them natural libraries or nature prairies, 
that are that are creating places for kids and, and anyone to read outside the library under the trees. Um, I believe that libraries, because there's pretty much one in most neighborhoods, uh, could become centers of bioregional awareness. They could have special sections right up at the front of the library of books and media uh, about the the life within that specific bioregion in which you live. Um, uh, they could have they could uh, uh, sponsor uh, family uh, nature clubs, again because they're they're a trusted place. Libraries, they're a place people know where they're at. You can go there and have meetings. They could play a, a great role uh, in this. And by the way, and obviously education, the schools can play a huge role. And there's controversy about using animals in classrooms, and I report on that. But this awareness of who we are as a species by getting to know other species, I think is fundamental to education. Um, I should mention here that none of this is new, that indigenous people have known this for forever. Uh, some indigenous people uh, still uh, have a deep understanding of this. And in fact, that indigenous knowledge should be much more a part of our uh, education system than it is today. And part of that indigenous knowledge is about our deep relationship with the, the animals we share this earth with. That's Outside Editor Chris Kyes speaking with author Richard Louth about his new book, Our Wild Calling. This episode was brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, making real nutrition for real athletes looking to step up their game. Their protein powder is vegan and full of probiotics, omega-3s, and iron. You can learn more about it and enter for a chance to win some fun prizes at bobsredmill.com outside. The Outside Podcast is produced by Outside Integrated Media and distributed by PRX. We'll be back next week.